Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word, Father, humble our hearts, make us receptive to your truth. Father, give us the hands to go walk in obedience. Father, for your glory, for our good, in Jesus' name, amen. What is happening all around us? LGBTQ plus insanity, babies murdered, and a president promising to make it a federal law, politicians speaking with deranged men who think they are little girls, an economic tilt-a-whirl with a recession looming in the distance, food shortages, supply chain issues, and McDonald's workers who make $15 an hour. What is happening? Distant chaos, but not so distant chaos. My toddler's disobedience is wearing me out. My job and its schedule is eating me alive. The struggles of my marriage, the false accusations of pagans, my emotions always haunting me, my body falling apart, and I'm only 37. My car keeps breaking down. What is happening? So far in Hebrews, Jesus has been compared and shown superior to the Old Testament speaking of God, namely the prophets, the priests, and the king, and how he is superior and better than those but also compared to these mighty and powerful beings that the Scriptures call angels. And again, how He is superior to those, but not just those things in and of themselves, but what they represent. They represent this Old Testament law that is good if it's used in the right way. But the way they are being pressured was to return to the law as a means of justification. A temptation to go around the road close sign and to seek to justify themselves through a thing that cannot change the heart. A law that describes the heart of God, describes the way in which we should walk, but cannot justify us because it cannot change our hearts. But many of us, when thinking about that, I'm afraid, the past couple weeks, have been like, yeah, cool, woohoo, go Jesus. 
I'm glad I'm on his team. I'm glad he's the superior one. Check. I got that. But then, on our way home, we look around us and say something like this. What a mess. If I could just fill in the blank with this mess, then I would feel justified. Then I would have hope. If I could just clean the stuff up around me, I would be justified. If creation around me would just be fixed, I could have hope. I could be right before God. I could have this oil of gladness. You look to creation. I look to creation oftentimes and say, somewhere inside these weeds is my justification. Somewhere inside these weeds is my hope. If my car would just stay working, then I'd have hope. If I could just find a new place to live, then I'd be all right. If my boss would recognize me for my work, then I'd be justified. If my marriage would just stop acting up, then I would be justified. If my house would just stay orderly, then I would be justified. And here's the reality. If your faith is in created things or your ability to manipulate those created things, then your faith will decay just like those things decay. Let me say that again. If your faith is in created things, or your ability to master or control or manipulate those created things, then your faith will decay just like created things decay. To put that a little more briefly, faith in decaying things always produces a decaying faith. Faith in decaying things always produces a decaying faith. Now, in order for us, I think, to really grasp the last few verses of this intro to Hebrews, we have to go to Psalm 102. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to keep your finger at, at Hebrews, but go to Psalm 102 with me. You have just a moment to get there. This is the passage that the author of Hebrews has in mind as we round out the opener here of Hebrews. Now, let me give you a, a, just a very overview, brief sketch of Psalm 102. The first half of Psalm, I guess for you, the first half of Psalm 102 the writer is, re, is lamenting the failure of all created things. So he's bothered. He's, he's kind of unsettled by the failure, the decaying reality of all created things, the brokenness, if you will. That first part of Psalm 102 is also a prophetic, or the whole passage is a prophetic passage, but the first half is speaking of the, the affliction of Christ. And his voice as he takes up the cross. That's the picture of the beginning of Psalm 102. The second half of Psalm 102 that we'll read is the lamenting man lifts his eyes to see God and there he finds hope. 
the eternality of God, the stability of God, the faithfulness of God. And the second half of Psalm 102 is also, because this as a prophetic passage, is the response of heaven to Jesus' cry. There's a two pictures being painted for us in Psalm 102. As before we begin, though, the reality for us is that whatever hope seems most promising is the place we will turn our faith to. The, the place of hope that seems most promising, we will turn our faith to. That's why it's so easy for us as created beings with eyes that are oftentimes so weak for multiple reasons to only see creation, and that seems most promising, and so we seek to place our faith and our hope there. A lot of us are not faced with turning to prophets, priests, and kings, or angels over Jesus, but we are faced oftentimes with placing our hope in sinful spouses, disobedient kids, pagan employers, houses and cars, etc. We're tempted to place our hope in fixing those things or controlling those things in order to feel justified or feel right. That's why so many of us have good days and then bad days or good hours and then bad hours and so on and so forth because, because our hope is in those shifting sands of circumstances, the decaying reality around us, and our hope is there. Let's, with that in mind, let's read, uh, I'm going to skip a handful of verses here, but let's read Psalm 102, beginning verse 1. It says, hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. For my days pass away like smoke. Here, here is hear his lamenting here. My days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my flesh. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, like an owl of the waste places. I lie awake, and I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. All the day my enemies taunt me. Those who deride me use my name for a curse. For I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink. You see, his lamenting the um, created decaying reality. What you also see is the hopelessness of hope in creation. The hopelessness of hope in creation. But then, he doesn't stop there in his lament. He climaxes his lament into the sinfulness of humanity. And he speaks of Man and his morality and his immorality, ultimately. And as, as this immorality is spoken of, it's cause for man's alienation from God. So verse 10, because of your indignation and anger, for you have taken me up and thrown me down. My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But now he turns his eyes elsewhere. His eyes do not stay on the decaying reality of creation. Verse 12, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It is the time to favor her. The appointed time has come. Down to verse 24. O my God, I say, take me not away in the midst of my days, you whose years endure throughout all generations. 
of old, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. And then verse 28, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. One commentator said this, Though all is lost in this life, though hardship and even death await, though the worst calamity brings destruction, the man who trusts the Lord sees him and his eternal reign of power, his unchanging and unchangeable character, and there he finds hope. Notice that last verse, the children of your servants, the children of your servants, God, shall dwell secure. This is the passage that the writer of Hebrews has in his mind as he's writing this last portion of this intro. Our Lord endures long beyond the end of the decaying things around us. So I pose this question, why would we ever comb the weeds of creation looking for hope and justification? Why? If this is the stark contrast, if this is the reality, to comb through creation trying to feel justified or be justified or to find hope is a crazy idea. Like it doesn't make sense, and yet we all do it every day. Most of us will spend day in and day out trying to feel justified through creation or our manipulation of it, trying to find hope therein. Always looking to that which is being rolled up like raggedy old jeans to provide for us what only something unchanging can give us. I'll say that again. Always looking to that which is being rolled up like raggedy jeans to provide for us what only something unchanging can give us. The psalmist, and subsequently the writer of Hebrews, is teaching us that the immutable character of God is the only place we can turn to. The immutable character of God is the only place we can turn to. What we see is the amazing picture of God's stability and His ability to stand above the change and decay of the created order with His own experience of affliction and exposure to death that we see in the man Christ Jesus as He goes to the cross. God's, like we see His like you see the pictures of in the Old Testament as, as the movements of people and, and the, the decaying reality of circumstances. You see God transcended above that. But where you see that most beautifully pictured is when Jesus comes to this earth in the face of all circumstances and the decaying reality of creation. Him face the decay of his body in death and brokenness and his triumph over it. Right? His transcendent, his 
step above, his power over. I have three things I want you to see that Jesus is superior to this morning, or is superior. He is superior because he is creator. He is superior because he is creator. Verse 10, the first part of verse 10, back to Hebrews. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You see, in a world of chaos... We need stability. In a world of chaos, you and I need stability. Listen, life as we know it is not as it was meant to be known. What has happened to the earth that Christ created? You name the evil, and it's probably happening somewhere or someplace at this given moment. Again, we now live in a country where a man claiming to be a teenage girl can get primetime TV attention with the most powerful man in the world, when the reality is both of these men should be committed to a mental hospital for doing so. We live on an earth where bending over to pick up a toy might throw your back out of order. We live in a world where marriage is hard. And parenting is getting even harder, it seems. What has happened to creation around us? We're reminded in Hebrews, in this passage, that the foundation of the earth and that the heavens are the work of King Jesus. In the midst of the chaos and the brokenness, that the foundation of the heavens and the earth was laid by the hands of Jesus. These things, though seemingly chaotic to our eyes, were still laid at the hands of the stability of a king, who we've known thus far in Hebrews has inherited it all, who reigns from a throne with an upright scepter, who hates evil and wickedness and loves righteousness, and who is ultimately going to make all things right. We're reminded here that in the midst of the chaos, there is a a throne that is stable and secure. Now, here's the subtle picture and question, I think, for us. The world is, follow my logic here, the world is decaying, but, but Jesus created the world. And if Jesus is eternal and he created the world, how come the world is in? How come the world is in chaos? I thought that Jesus made all things good. I thought that his way always works out. I, I thought that since it, this is Jesus' thing, it, it should be like Jesus. All good and no trouble. And then the temptation, I think, in that moment for God-fearing and faithful Christians is to take our expectations of Christ's creation and impose it on Jesus and then to look there for our justification. Now, I'm going to flesh this out. We think creation should look perfect and amazing, and so our eyes get allured there. If I can just harness creation, if I can just take this moment and make it perfect, if I can just take all the things around me and just make it all right and perfect, right? Because it's supposed to be like that, right? Because that's the way Jesus, he created all this. It's supposed to be that way, right? So if I can just take this moment and make it all work out the way it's supposed to work out, 
Then, then, I will feel justified. I'll feel like there's hope. All rooted, sometimes in a good belief that all that Jesus is working out all things for the good of those who are called according to his purpose, that he is redeeming all of creation. That's this good thought. But then we think, okay, that means that everything right now should be perfect. And we impose our expectation of the timing of things or the way things are supposed to work out. And we try to get in there and meddle and work things out in such a way that we feel as though we are justified or righteous. Let me give you an example. Marriage is created by God. Our logic goes, well, I married a Christian. Why does it feel like my marriage is decaying? I thought I could count on this thing to make me feel right before God or to give me hope. What's happening? I thought Jesus wanted more. And then we impose our expectations that, right, marriage is supposed to be a beautiful picture of Christ and his church. That's true. But you're not promised that it's going to look fully like that or perfectly like that right now. You're not promised that. So if I, but we think, if I can just make my marriage stable, if I can just get my children's obedience, if I can just get my spouse to be where they should be, then, then I'll feel hope. Then I'll feel justified. The problem, again, is if you look at creation, you're likely to see an overwhelming reality of chaos. And if you're placing your hope in creation, even the good and right outcomes that you know God objectively is aiming creation at. But if your hope is in those things, your faith will be shaken. And a lot of times because we impose our expectations on those things, oftentimes the timing of those expectations. What's the point? Faith in decaying things will always produce a decaying faith. There is no stability there. You have to look at the Creator. You have to. Your eyes must be firmly fixed there. I mean literally. Let's just get out of the clouds for a moment. In that moment, when things are not going the right way, and we'll assume for the moment that the right way is defined the right way, meaning biblically. So let's assume that what you want in those weeds of creation is also what God wants. Let's assume that. Where is your hope in that moment? You can desire for those things to be right without your hope being in those things being right. You can desire for those things to be right. You can work for those things to be right without your faith, without you wrapping your justification up to those things being right. You can tell when your faith, your hope is wrapped up with those things being right when the thought of those things not being right is what's driving your joy, what's driving your decisions, driving your emotions, driving your outcome. Or driving your next steps. But if the creator 
If it's in the creator that your faith is placed, that your hope is in, that your justification is in, then you can walk in the oil of gladness and execute righteousness in whatever situation you're in. You can work towards restoration, order, beauty, flourishing, and such. But as someone whose faith is firmly planted in the creator of those things... We'll talk a little bit in a few moments about the danger, like when, when our hope is in those created things versus the creator, what we will likely do in those moments. We'll get there in a bit. Only hope in the creator will garner you the stability of faith that you hope for. Only he is unshaken by creation, and it's the reality of decay. So what's your stability? A peaceful home, a happy husband, a happy wife, keeping that sleep schedule with your child, feeling happy after a Christian duty, what's your stability when it's not in Jesus? You should have that written down. You should write that down. You should think about that. Jesus is superior because he's the creator. Next, Jesus is superior because he is eternal. Because he is eternal. Let's read 11 and 12 of Hebrews. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. In a world of fleetingness, we need everlasting. In a world of fleetingness, we need everlasting. Listen, you and I were created for eternity. In a sense, every human being has eternal life. The question is, is where that eternal life is spent. It's not eternal life and then cease to existence if you don't believe in Jesus. It's eternal life for both. Our souls were built to last our souls long for a sense of endurance, longevity, persistence. That's why we hate phrases like, all good things must come to an end. I mean, you like that as a parent, so your kids can just get over the fact that the fun's over. But we don't like that. We want the good to continue. Or it's why you have phrases like, time passes when you're having fun. It's why my kids think Rusty preaches shorter sermons than I do. Because to them, he's funnier, and so they have more fun. It's because the good things, listen, I don't think we realize this as Christians, but the good things of this earth were meant to be enjoyed by us for all of eternity. They were meant to be enjoyed good, richly, robustly, thoroughly for all of eternity. They were meant to last. All of it. The garden and what we could eat and the flourishing of that garden and the orderliness of that garden and the beauty of that garden and the beauty of relationship unhindered by sin without shame and walking in with God. All of those things were good things that were meant to be enjoyed and last forever. We were created to live forever, to enjoy those things forever. So then when all we see is here today and gone tomorrow, it's soul crushing. 
It hurts even. It leaves us wondering what happened. What happened to the joy of my marriage? Or what happened to my knees that didn't hurt? Or what happened to those road with, roads without potholes? I'll just give me examples. Some of us think a little less deeply than others. The world around us is wearing out like a garment. You know, like when those favorite jeans that get a hole that should be thrown in the trash and not worn around like fashion? You see this in relationships? I'm just giving you a hard time. If you've got holy jeans, that's fine. That's, it's, it's not a sin for you to have holy jeans. Lest someone pull me out of context. There we go. You see this in relationships. Relationships tend to wear out like jeans do. You see this in politics. They wear out even faster. It's why you see our world so desperately trying to preserve everything. We want it to last forever. It's a part of the reason for the insanity of shutting down our country in 2020. Our world's hope was only in the preserving of decaying things. It's why our world is so afraid of death. Because it's all the world has. It's all the world has. But our temptation is just the same. To place our faith in being able to preserve all the good things around us. Yes, even trying, this is where we get to follow me, like we are to, to fight for the preservation of good things, of right things, but our hope can't be there. Our hope oftentimes gets fixed or we attach that buggy to the horse of the fleetingness of good things. If I can just keep this going, then I will feel justified. Another example in marriage. In my marriage, if I could just preserve a good marriage, then I will feel justified. I will feel hope. But here's the problem. If our hope, and I said we would get to this point, now we're getting to this point. If our hope is in sustaining the good marriage for our justification, or for our place of hopefulness, if we go into those weeds trying to find our place of security and stability then what we'll do is we'll redefine what a good marriage is in order to feel accomplished in keeping it. And then we'll likely be willing to sin in order to keep it there. Why? Because the marriage and our keeping it there is the ruling and reigning authority in our lives and not Jesus. So we might be tempted to do things like just keep the peace. Or we might be tempted, ladies, to treat your husband like a child just to keep him happy. Or husbands, you might be tempted to give in to the demands of your manipulative wife. What's the motivation in that moment? A good desire for eternality. You want to sustain the goodness. That's right, the uprightness. You want to sustain that. That's a good desire. As my wife reminded me of this phrase the other day, it can become an over-desire. Where your faith in the marriage lasting forever 
becomes the over-desire. It becomes the chief desire, or in other words, the ruling desire, instead of the creator being the ruler and the chief authority in your life. Listen, your marriage too will one day be rolled up and will give way to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Our faith must be in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and whose years have no end. Whose years have no end. Like in that moment, you find yourself wrapped up and controlled by this desire to sustain the eternality of good things. In that question, in that moment, remind yourself that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and, and his years have no end. And then turn your eyes off the dumpster fire of decaying things toward Christ, who is the same each and every day. As we watch creation fleetingly pass by, we should remind ourselves, we should remind our kids, we should remind our wives, we should remind our friends that Jesus will not. He is the one who will not fade away. He is the one who stands over and above all the fleeting realities of today. And then, only then can you rightly exercise dominion over that decaying creation. Then you can fight for the sustaining of all true, good, and beautiful things. This true, good, and beautiful things and your sustaining of those things cannot be where your hope is at. But you can fight for those things when your hope is in Christ. Listen, we long for the security of longevity and the only one who can foot that bill is Jesus. And again, to remind us, Jesus proves this most thoroughly in the face of his humanity, especially his death. If you want to write down something, you should write this down. The only thing rolled up like a pair of raggedy old jeans in the death of Christ was the temple curtain. The only thing rolled up like a pair of raggedy old jeans in the death of Christ was the curtain in the temple. It got rolled up, but Jesus endured, and Jesus conquered death. Why? Because he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, because his years have no end. When you're in that moment where life feels chaotic, and you don't know what you're going to do, and you're just struggling. You're like, Lift your eyes. That's what the psalmist does. He lifts his eyes. What, what, what you, like literally, listen to me, church. Let's just take it out of the clouds again. Tell your mind to stop thinking about those things and to think about heavenly things. You have the power of the Spirit to do that. Now listen, 30 seconds later, you might have to do the same thing. Your mind's going to wander back into the dumpster. Get, tell your mind, get out of the dumpster, look on these things. That's why Paul says, whatever is true, lovely, good, think on these things, dwell on these things. 
take your mind. No, I'm not going to think about it. I'm going to think on these things. That's what the psalmist does. He lifts his eyes. That's not bootstraps, like pulling yourself by your bootstraps. But it is you working out your salvation, meaning it's you, by the power of the Spirit, working out the faith that God has given you. Our faith must be in the one who is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and whose years have no ends. So what do you turn to for everlasting? What is that? Name it. Next, Jesus is superior because he sits at the right hand of God. Jesus is superior because he sits at the right hand of God. Hebrews 13. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? It's such a powerful, powerful couple of verse here in words. In a world of tyrants, we need a conqueror. In a world of tyrants, we need a conqueror. There are many enemies to the rightful king, from politicians to the neighborhood drug dealer or pimp to big tech CEOs, organizations like BLM or movements like feminism. All of these enemies from without and tyrants who need a conqueror. But also the enemy within, our own flesh, our own evil desires, our own self-righteousness, the, the ways in which we think we can justify ourselves. All these tyrants need to be conquered, defeated, subdued, put to death. Ultimately, sin itself and death in the grave need conquered and have been conquered ultimately. Listen, the image being pictured here in 13 is the image of Christ's kingly supremacy. That's the picture. Christ's kingly supremacy. One commentator said this, the image of him seated, the image of Christ seated comes from the oriental court where the king sat upon his throne while his vassals and servants stood before him to show their deference and his supremacy. That's the picture. Listen, this isn't meant to picture or conjure up the sentiment of children sitting next to grandpa. It's a picture here of a warrior king who is sovereign over the lands and his servants bowing before him to recognize that. That's the picture. This picture is painted for us in a passage like Revelation 7, verse 11 through 12. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Sitting at the right hand of God signifies that Christ holds a singular honor and dignity that belongs only to him. There is only one spot that is at the right hand of the throne. There's one seat, and that seat's filled, and it's Jesus. Singular. His dignity, his honor, his power, 
His wisdom, His glory, His might. What's being conveyed for us is the rank and power and authority that is Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is the King, and He rules over it all. What does it mean that He rules over it all? It means that He is actively reigning from that throne. When circumstances seem chaotic and we're like, what is going on? Jesus is still actively reigning from his throne. You may not be able to see how he's doing that. You may not be able to pinpoint it exactly. But the Bible tells us he is still reigning and ruling at the right hand of his father. He's actively, he's not just sitting there. That's what we've been trained to think about people who hold positions of power. Because people in our day that hold positions of power do just sit there. But he's ruling over it all. He's actively working, decreeing, cultivating, judging, etc. Remember while he was on earth, and we tend to think of when Jesus was on earth, we think about this kind of good, faithful, obedient little boy, and then he goes to the cross. And that's kind of how we just picture, that's kind of like uh, the, the... the most we paint when we paint the life of Jesus. But let me remind you that when he was on earth reigning and ruling, that he cast out demons, he healed the sick, he exposed liars and hypocrites, he denounced false teachers, he humbled the proud, and he forcefully removed people from the temple who should not be there. That's what a ruler does. That's what a king does who is actively reigning. He hasn't stopped doing that. Our temptation is to think, though, if I can just conquer all of these things, then I could feel justified. If I could just place our hope in these things going well, it will be good. Or maybe we even think Jesus isn't doing anything. So that means i got to make something happen. And then every day, again, we're faced with more and more data that the world around us is quite terrible. Things are decaying. In a world of tyrants, we need to remember that we have a conqueror. We have a conqueror. Your hope can't be in you. It must be only in Christ. Then you can go conquer. Then you can go make things right that's within your reach and grasp in your little corner of the world. Why? Because we also are told here that one day all of these tyrants will be nothing more than a footstool to the king of kings. He will be nothing, they will be resolved, they will be relegated to nothing more than a footstool. They will be conquered, they will be defeated, they will be subdued. I would remind us that to understand that God doesn't work oftentimes in months or just years or even decades, but He works in centuries and millenniums. He works at a different pace than we oftentimes prefer he do. 
I know it's tempting to look around and say, well, everything's going to hell in a handbasket, and then to lose faith. But that's just the point here. Don't. Because his plan has been decreed, and his plan is unfolding before our eyes. It's called faith. Every enemy will be made a footstool. And your hope and my hope cannot be in our own defeating of those enemies. Jesus is where our hope must lie. Now this question, will you be a footstool or will you be a king? You choose. Will you be his companion or will you be his foe? We have that choice each and every day. Next week, we're going to talk about how will we escape God's judgment if we neglect so great a salvation. That's where the writer of Hebrews is going. If you neglect this salvation, this great salvation, you will be a footstool. But if you don't neglect such great a salvation, then you will be a king with the king of kings. You'll be a ruler with the king of kings. And then verse 14 of Hebrews says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let's recap for a moment. In a world of chaos, we need stability. In a world of fleetingness, we need everlasting. In a world of tyrants, we need a conqueror. And faith in decaying things always produces a decaying faith. But let me leave you with this quote. If all of this is true, What can a soul need in time or eternity that cannot be found in Christ? Do you need pardon for your sin? See him exalted and know that God has accepted the sacrifice of his blood on your behalf. Do you need reconciliation to God? There he is at God's right hand interceding for you and offering his own perfect work as the ground of your acceptance. Do you need newness of life, a new heart, a new strength to follow him? From his heavenly throne, he sends mighty resources, even angels to your aid. Better yet, he sends his Holy Spirit to work within you with his own power. He goes on, do you have troubles, difficult decisions to make, choices that worry you, or problems that cause you to fear and anxiety? Christ is enthroned in power, a Savior who cares for you with wisdom and love, with power and a grand purpose for your future. The practical value of this truth is immense, for it leads us to trust Him and glorify Him with our blood-purchased lives. He goes on, do you fear death? He is reigning now until even that last enemy called death shall be conquered. Because he reigns victorious, death will have no hold on you, but only ushers you into the courts of glory. Let me encourage you, church. Stop digging through the weeds of decaying creation looking for hope. Christ is better. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we sinfully, I confess, 
as individuals, as a people, there's likely not a day goes by that we do not have our eyes fixed on creation and our ability to manipulate creation and subdue it, the things that you've commanded us to do, to go exercise dominion, to bring the uprightness of your scepter. But there is hardly a day that goes by that your people here do not look to that work as proof of our righteousness or as a place of hope instead of to you and to the work of your son Jesus as our only hope. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us. And we know that there is a pardon for our sin through the blood of your son Jesus for, for that sin. And then let us walk in rightly ordered desires and hopes where our hope is ultimately in your son Jesus and his rightful working and that we would beg you to work your power and might and plans and purpose through us. To bring beauty and delight in God and dominion to this earth that you've given us and the little corners of it that you've placed each and every single one of us. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.